This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Story Hour. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, so usually when we do these things, I come up here and I do a kind of summary of the person's life achievements and a uh, couple of ex- um, nice review things to suggest what the writing is like and uh, so forth. And if ever there was a time for this, the introducer to say, you know, this person needs no introduction and get the hell out of the way, it would be right now. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to like take just a little bit of time because uh, uh, it's something that I've been wanting to say for years. And yesterday I was reading uh, Joyce being interviewed in the Paris Review in 1978. Uh, And she said a couple of things in that that really struck me. Um, And so the first one is, anyone who teaches knows that you don't really experience a text until you've taught it in loving detail with an intelligent and responsive class. And so I've been teaching Joyce's work for years and years and years. And I've seen students respond to it uh, in extraordinary ways. And for the same reasons that I think I do um, to the wild intensity of its writing, to its moral complexity, to its political insightfulness. Um, And then also in the same interview she said uh, about the American novel, but there is a feel to the American novel that is radically different. We are wilder, more exploratory, more ambitious, perhaps less easily shamed, less easily discouraged. And as a foreigner, I certainly think that's true. And I think in her work also, Joyce catches something about America that has struck me very powerfully from the first moment that I got on the plane, off the plane. And that is that there is this Cartesian order on the surface that very powerfully evokes this um, commitment to rationality that is embodied in the very Constitution and the intents of the founders. But it's also really a crazy, demon-haunted place. And I think... um, the way that she evokes it has illuminated the landscape of America for me. So I want to say thank you on behalf of my students and my own thanks for your work. Thanks. Please welcome, Chris. Uh, thank you for that gracious introduction. Can everyone hear me? Well, I'm really great. I'm so grateful to be here. And it's such a warm place. So I think Story Hour has such a kind of comfortable and nostalgic sound to it, sort of shades into nap time. (laughs) It's so comfortable here that I don't mind at all if people sort of just drift into nap time. And I have to say parenthetically, not to embarrass Vikram, but he has some nice news today. He's a Guggenheim Fellow for next year. (laughs) I like to embarrass people. (laughs) Then I want to say also that I have my cell phone here just for so I know what time it is. I'm not actually doing my email or Twitter as I, as I read. Though. It will be tempting, you know, especially Twitter, but that's here only for that reason. So two years ago I read here and I had a wonderful experience. And some of my, my students, I was teaching here in the English department, and had wonderful students. I think we had about 15 great people, most of whom have gone on, they've graduated, and who knows where they've gone, but they're not here probably. And I have one wonderful student from my Princeton years, so that's been a while back, and he's sitting here trying not, not to be embarrassed, but it's, it's really great. 
So the story I'm going to read this afternoon, and then I'll be happy to take questions from anyone, particularly from fellow writers and poets. This story I wrote uh, when I was here last time, two years ago, and it was published in The New Yorker about a year later, but it was written when I was right here, and a lot of very powerful and poignant memories, because it was not, it was not really an easy time for me. It was a somewhat emotionally turbulent time. So this story is not actually autobiographical, and the person in it is not me, and the man in it is not my husband. I have to say that quickly, even though the husband and my and this person shares some parallels. It's actually not him. Dot dot dot. <laughs> but my husband, who's not a reticent person, has been known to be somewhat quiet when he read the story. I think it's very touching. So I'm not sure there's anything else I have to say. It's set in Wildcat Canyon, where we did a lot of hiking, and I have a special, a lot of special feeling. But there was one hike that I'll never forget, and that's it's more or less memorialized here. But again, I have to say, it's not an autobiographical story. Emotionally, it's sort of biographical, but not literally. Mastiff. Earlier on the trail, they'd seen it the massive dog, tugging at its master's leash so that the young man's calves bulged with muscle as he fought to hold the dog back, grunting what sounded like, damn, Rob Roy, damn dog, in a tone of exasperated affection. Signs along the trail forbade dogs without leashes. At least this dog was on a leash. The woman stared at the animal not 12 feet away, wheezing and panting. Its head was larger than hers, with a pronounced black muzzle, bulging glassy eyes. Its jaws were powerful and slack. Its large, long tongue, as rosy pink as a sexual organ, dropped slobber. The dog was pale, brindle-furred, with a deep chest, strong shoulders and legs, a taut tail. It must have weighed at least 200 pounds. Its breathing was damply audible and unsettling. The dog's straggly-bearded young master in a beige hoodie, khaki cargo shorts, and hiking boots gripped their leather leash with both hands, squinting at the woman and at the man behind her with an expression that seemed apologetic or defensive. Or maybe the woman thought the young man was laughing at them, ordinary hikers without a monster dog to pull and strain at their arms. The woman thought, that isn't a dog. It's a human being on its hands and knees. Such surreal thoughts bombarded the woman's brain, waking and sleeping. As long as no one else knew about them, she paid them little heed. Fortunately, the dog and its owner were taking another trail into Wildcat Canyon. The dog lunged forward eagerly, sniffing at the ground, the young man following with muttered curses. The woman and her male companion continued on the main trail, which was three miles uphill into the sun, to Wildcat Peak. The man, sensing the woman's unease at the sight of the dog, made some joke, which the woman couldn't quite hear and did not acknowledge. They were walking single file, the woman in the lead. She waited for the man to touch her shoulders, another man might have done to reassure her, but she knew that he would not, and he did not. Instead, the man said in a tone of slight reproof that the dog was an English mastiff, beautiful dog. Much of what the man said to the woman, she understood, was in rebuke of her narrow judgment, her timorous ways. Sometimes the man was amused by these qualities. At other times, she saw in his face an expression of startled disapproval and veiled contempt. The woman said over her shoulder with a wild little laugh, Yes, beautiful. 
The hike had been the man's suggestion, or rather in his oblique way, which was perhaps a strategy of shyness, he'd simply told her that he was going hiking this weekend and asked if she wanted to join him. He had not risked being rejected. He had made it clear that he would be going regardless. The woman had been introduced to the man seven weeks earlier at a dinner party at a mutual friend's home in the Berkeley Hills. The friend, closer to the man than to the woman, had said to the man, You're like Mariella. You're like her face. And to the woman, Simon's an extraordinary person, but it may not be evident immediately. Give him time. The woman and the man had gone on several walks together already, but a hike of such ambition seemed to the woman something quite different. She said, yes, I'd love that. It was late afternoon now. They'd been hiking for several hours and were now making their way single file down the mountain. The woman was descending first, then the man. The man, the more experienced hiker, wanted to watch over the woman, whom he didn't trust not to hurt herself. She'd surprised him by wearing lightweight running shoes on the trail and not, as he was wearing, hiking boots. She hadn't thought to bring water either. He carried a 20-ounce plastic bottle of water for them both. The man was a little annoyed by the woman, yet he was drawn to her. He hoped to like her more than he did. He hoped to adore her. He had been very lonely for too long and had come to bitterly resent the solitude of his life. It had been an unnaturally balmy day for late March. At midday, the temperature was perhaps 68 degrees. But now, as the sun sank like a broken, bloody egg, darkness and cold began to rise from the earth. The day before, the man had suggested to the woman that she bring a light canvas jacket. He knew how quickly the mountain trail could turn cold in late afternoon, but she had worn just a sweater, jeans, and sun visor. And she confounded the man by not bringing a backpack at all, with the excuse that she hated feeling, quote, burdened. In the gathering chill, the woman was shivering. The trail had looped upward through the pine woods to a spectacular view where the man had given the woman some, view, some water to drink. Though she said she wasn't thirsty, he insisted. There's a danger of dehydration when you've been exerting yourself, he said. He spoke sternly, as if he were a parent she could not reasonably oppose. He spoke with the confidence of one who was rarely challenged. At times, the woman quite liked this air of authority. At other times, she resented it. The man seemed always to be regarding her with a bemused look, like a scientist confronted with a curious specimen. She didn't want to think, and yet she did think compulsively, that he was comparing her to other women he'd known and finding her lacking. Then the man took photographs with his new camera while the woman gazed out at the view. Along the horizon was a rim of luminous blue, the Pacific Ocean miles away, and the near distance was small lakes and streams, the hills were strangely sculpted, like those bald slopes in the paintings of Thomas Hart Benton. Absorbed in his photography, the man seemed to forget about the woman. How self-contained he could be, how maddening. The woman had been, never been so at repose in herself. For nearly an hour, he lingered taking photographs. During this time, other hikers came and went. The woman spoke with these hikers while the man appeared oblivious of them. It wasn't his habit, he told her, to strike up conversations with random people. Why not, she'd ask. And he said with a look that suggested to a question was virtually incomprehensible. Why not? Because I'll never see them again. With a provocative little laugh, the woman had said, but that's the best reason for talking to strangers. You'll never see them again. At least a bearded young man with the English Mastiff hadn't climbed to the top of Wildcat Peak, though other hikers with dogs had made their way there. 
a succession of dogs, in fact, of all sizes and breeds, most of them well-behaved and disinclined to bark, several of them trailing their masters, older dogs, looking chastised and winded. Nice dog, what's his name, the woman would ask, or what breed is he? She understood that the man had taken note of her fear of the mastiff at the start of the hike, how she tensed at the sight of the ugly, wheezing beast. It had to have been the largest dog she'd ever seen, as big as a St. Bernard, but totally lacking that dog's benign, shaggy aura. And so at the peak, the woman made a, a point of engaging dog owners in conversations in a bright, airy, friendly way. She even petted the gentler dogs. As a child of nine or ten, she'd been attacked by a German shepherd. She'd done nothing to provoke the attack and could only remember screaming and trying to run as a dog barked furiously at her and snapped at her legs. Only the intervention of adults had saved her. The woman hadn't told the man much about her past, not yet, and possibly she wouldn't. Her principle was, never reveal your weakness, especially to strangers. This was essential. Technically, the woman and the man were lovers, but they were not yet intimate. You might say that they were still fundamentally strangers to each other. They'd been together in a woman's house upstairs in her bed, but they hadn't yet spent an entire night together. The man felt self-conscious in the woman's house, and the woman hadn't been able to fall asleep beside him. The physical fact of him was so distracting. Naked and horizontal, the man seemed much larger than he did clothed and vertical. He breathed loudly, wetly through his open mouth, and though he woke affably when she nudged him, the woman had not wanted to keep waking him. And the truth, the woman had never been very comfortable with a man at close quarters unless she'd been drinking. But this man scarcely drank. And the woman no longer lost herself in drink. That life was behind her. The woman liked to tell her friends that she wanted not to get married, but to be married. She wanted a relationship that seemed mature, if not old and settled from the start. Newness and rawness did not appeal to her. Excuse me, when do you think we might head back? She spoke to the man hesitantly, not wanting to break his concentration. In the relationship, he had not yet displayed any impatience. She had not yet raised her voice. At last, the man put his camera, a heavy, complicated instrument, into his backpack along with the water bottle, which contained just two or three inches of water now. We might need this later. His movements were measured and deliberate as if he were alone, and the woman felt a sudden stab of dislike for him and anger that he should take such care with trivial matters and yet did not seem to love her. There were no restrooms on the trail, of course. These were serious hiking trails for serious hikers. Longingly, the woman recalled the facilities at the trailhead, How long would it take to hike back down? An hour or two? For male hikers, stopping to urinate in the woods was no great matter. For female hikers, an effort and an embarrassment. Not since she was a young girl trapped in an endless, hateful hike in the summer camp in the Adirondacks had she been forced to relieve herself in the woods. The memory was hazed and blurred with shame and humiliation at the very pettiness of her discomfort. If she told the story to the man, he would have laughed at her. Driving to the park that day, the man and the woman had felt very happy together. It sometimes happened to them, unpredictably, a sudden flaring up of happiness, even joy in each other's company. The man was unusually talkative. The woman laughed at his remarks, surprised he could be so witty. She was touched that a few days before he'd visited the art gallery she ran and purchased a small soapstone sculpture. The woman slid over in the passenger's seat to sit closer to the man, as a young girl might do impulsively. How natural this felt, 
a rehearsal of intimacy. The car radio was playing a piano piece by the Czech composer Janacek, In the Mists. The woman recognized it after a few notes. She'd played the piano cycle as a girl. Her eyes filled with tears as she remembered. The man continued talking as if he didn't hear the music. Avidly, the woman listened to the somber, distinctive notes of the minor, misty key. She didn't register the man's words, but his voice was suffused with the melancholy beauty of the music, and she felt that she loved him or might love him. He will be the one. It's time. The woman was 41 years old. The man was several years older. He had been the director of a research laboratory in Berkeley for many years. His work was predominant in his life. He was idealistic, a zealot for science education and the preservation of the environment. He was famously generous to younger scientists, a legendary mentor. He'd never married. He wasn't sure he'd ever been in love. Though he'd always wanted children, he had none. He was dissatisfied with his life outside the lab. He felt cheated and foolish and worried that others might pity him. He'd been so upset earlier that year while visiting one of his protégés at the Salk Institute, his wife, whose wife was also a scientist and who had several children. The young family lived in a split-level cedar house on three acres of land. In this household, the man had felt sharply the emptiness of his own existence in an underfurnished, rented house near the university where he'd lived for more than 20 years. He'd ended the visit shaken, and not long afterward he'd met the woman at a dinner party. The woman was also lonely and dissatisfied, but primarily with others, not with herself. She'd had several relationships with men since college, but she hadn't felt much for any of them. Some she'd dated simultaneously, and yet she was deeply hurt if a man wasn't exclusively involved with her. Her father had left the family when she was a child and rarely visited. All her life she'd yearned for that absent man, even as she resented him. She'd hated her own vulnerability. Well, she was an attractive woman. Within her small circle of friends, she was popular and admired. She dressed stylishly. She was social. She'd invested wisely in her art gallery. Still, she was preoccupied with how she appeared in others' eyes. She could barely force herself to contemplate her own image in a mirror. Her face, she thought, was too small, her chin too narrow, her eyes too large and deep-set. She hated the fact that she was petite. She'd have preferred to be five feet ten to walk with a swagger, with sexual confidence. At five three, it seemed she had no choice but to the recipient, the receptacle of a man's desire. Sometimes in the midst of buoyant social occasions, something inside the woman seemed to switch off. She could feel a deadness seeping into her, a chilly indifference. At the end of an evening, her women friends would hug her, or a friend's husband might slip his arm around her waist to kiss her, and the coldness in her would respond, I don't give a damn if I ever see any of you again. She laughed at herself, a hole in the heart. Yet it happened in a new man's company that the woman felt a rare hopefulness. If she couldn't love the man, it might be enough for the man to love her, enough for them to have a child together at least. In the woman's weakest moment, she lamented the fact that she had no children and she would soon be too old to have any. Yet children bored her, even her nieces and nephews, whom she conceded were beautiful. What would the man have thought if he'd known about the woman's calculations? Or were these just harmless fantasies unlikely to be realized? Now making their way down the trail, eager to be out of the park that had seemed so inviting hours ago, the woman felt disconsolate. 
The long wait at the peak had enervated her. The man's seeming indifference had enervated her. As the sun shifted in the sky, she felt strength leaking from her. Brooding and silent, the man walked behind her, sometimes so close he nearly trod on her heels. She wanted to turn and shout at him, Don't do that! I'm going as fast as I can. So absorbed was the woman with the voice inside her head that she only half realized she'd been hearing a familiar sound somewhere close by. A wet chuffing noise, a labored breathing. The trail continued to drop, turning back upon herself. Another lower trail ran parallel to it now and would join it within a few yards, and on this trail two figures were hurrying. One of them in a lead, a large beast running on all fours. Appalled, the woman saw the enormous mastiff stop at the junction of the two trails, unavoidable. The dog's damp, shining eyes were fixed on her, sharply focused. With a kind of indignation, quickly shifting to fury, the dog barked at the woman, straining at its leash as the bearded young man yelled at it to sit. The woman knew better than to succumb to panic. Certainly she knew better than to provoke the dog, But she couldn't help herself. She screamed and shrank away. It was the worst possible reaction to the dog, which, maddened by her terror, leapt at her, barking and growling, wrenching the leash out of its master's hands. In the instant, the mastiff was on the woman, snarling and biting, nearly knocking her to the ground. Even in her horror, the woman was thinking, My face, I must protect my face. Her companion quickly intervened, pushing himself between her and the dog, even as the dog and its hind legs continued to attack. Futilely, the dog's master shot at Rob Roy. The dog plays not the slightest attention. The frantic struggle could not have lasted more than a minute or two. Fiercely, the man struck at the dog with his bare fist and kicked it. The young man yanked at the dog's collar, cursing. With great effort, he finally managed to pull the animal away from the man, who was bleeding badly now from lacerations on his hands and arms and face. The woman, terrified, was cringing behind him. She felt something wet on her face, not blood, but the dog's slobber. She called out, help him, get help for him, he'll bleed to death. The dog was still barking hysterically, leaping and lunging with bared fangs, while the young man struggled to hold it down, apologizing profusely, claiming the man had never done anything like this before. Jesus, I'll get help. There was a ranger station a half mile down the trail, the young man said. He'd run. Alone with the injured man, the woman cradled him in her arms as he moaned in pain. He appeared to be dazed, stupefied. Was he in shock? His skin felt cold to the woman's touch. She could barely comprehend what had happened so swiftly. The dog had bitten and scratched her hands, too. She was bleeding, but her fear was to the man. She fumbled in her pocket for her cell phone, tried to call 911, but the call failed to go through. She wondered whether she should make a tourniquet to staunch the flow of blood from the man's forearm. Years ago in high school, she'd taken a course in first aid, but could she remember now? For an tourniquet, you had to use a stick. Her eyes darted about, searching for what? Like a foolish trapped bird, her heart beat erratically in her chest. The man assisted now. He was all right. He could walk to the ranger station. Grotesquely, he tried to laugh. He had no idea how torn and bloody his face was. The woman helped him to his feet. How heavy he was and how uncoordinated. His face was a mask of blood, loose flaps of loose skin on his cheeks and forehead. One of his earlobes was torn. At least his eyes had been spared. The woman gripped the man around the waist clumsily, and he was able to walk leaning on her. She tried to comfort him. She had no idea what she was saying, except that there would be help for him soon. He would be all right. She saw that the front and sleeves of her sweater were soaked in dark blood. 
By this time, the sun had sunk below the tree line. It was dusk, and the air was cold and wet, as if after a rain. They began to hear calls. Two rangers were running up the shadowy trail with flashlights, shouting. They were taken to the ranger station and given first aid, sterilizing liquid bandages. For the man's lacerated forearm, a tourniquet deftly applied by the elder of the rangers, who told the man how lucky he was, quote, the artery wasn't severed. With a dog attack, there was a possibility of rabies. It was imperative to locate the dog. It seemed that the young man had fled the park with the mastiff. Incredibly, he had not even reported the attack. But the hiker, who had witnessed it from a distance, had alerted the rangers and taken down the plate number of the young man's jeep. He would be prosecuted for the attack and for leaving the scene, too, the ranger said. Around the bandages, the man's face was ashen. His breath came quickly and shallowly. He was urged to lie down on a cot. Despite his protests, an ambulance was called. His injuries required stitches. That was clear. Within minutes, the ambulance arrived in a now-deserted parking lot. The woman wanted to ride with the man, but he insisted she take his car and meet him at the hospital. He didn't want his vehicle to be locked in the park overnight. Even with his injuries and speaking with difficulty, the man appeared to be thinking calmly and rationally. The woman took his keys and his wallet and backpack and followed the ambulance along curving mountain roads in his station wagon. She could hardly breathe, her loneliness as palpable and suffocating as cotton batten. She still could not quite fathom the idea that the dog's owner had fled the park without reporting the attack. The young man had cared so little about their welfare. He'd fled knowing that if his dog wasn't located by the authorities, both victims would have to endure rabies shots. She'd been told by the rangers he would be apprehended within a few hours. The attack attack had already been reported to the local police. A warrant would be issued for the dog owner's arrest. She'd been assured that the authorities would find the man and check the dog for rabies, but in her distressed state, she'd scarcely been able to listen or to care. At the brightly lit clinic, the woman hurried inside as the man was carried into the ER on a stretcher. He seemed to be only partly conscious now and unaware of his surroundings. She asked one of the medical workers what was wrong and was told that the man had had a kind of seizure in the ambulance. He'd lost consciousness. His blood pressure had risen alarmingly, and his heartbeat had accelerated in fibrillation. Fibrillation, the woman knew only vaguely what this meant. She was prevented from following the man into the ER. She found herself standing at a counter being asked questions. She fumbled with his wallet, searching for his health insurance card his university ID, how slowly she moved, as clumsy in her bandages as if she were wearing mittens. One of the EMTs was telling her that she should be treated as well. Her lacerated hands and wrists should be examined. But the woman refused to listen. She flushed with indignation when the woman behind the counter asked how she was related to the injured man. Sharply she said, I am his fiancé. How long she remained in the ER waiting room, the woman had no clear idea. Time had become disjointed. Her eyelids were so heavy she could barely keep them open. Several times she inquired after the man and was told that he was undergoing emergency treatment for cardiac arrhythmia and that she could not see him yet. The news was unacceptable to her. He'd only been written by a damn dog. He hadn't seemed so badly injured. He insisted on walking. The woman was lightheaded. Her hands and wrists began to burn. She heard her thin, plaintive voice begging, Don't let him die. Looking around, she saw how others regarded her. 
a woman crazed with worry and fear, a woman whose voice was raised in panic, the sort of woman you pity even as you inch away from her. She saw that her coarse-knit Scottish sweater, one of her favorites, had been torn beyond repair. In a fluorescent-lit restroom, her face in the mirror was blurred, like those faces on TV that are pixelated in order to disguise their identity. She was thinking of how the massive dot had thrown itself at her and how, astonishingly, the man had protected her. Did the man love her, then? Well, what a coward she'd been, ducking behind him to save herself, grabbing at him desperately, cringing, crouching, whimpering like a terrified child. The man had thrust himself forward to be attacked in her place. A man who was virtually a stranger had risked his life for her. The woman had the man's backpack with his camera and wallet. In a state of nervous dread, she looked through the wallet. Credit cards, university ID, driver's license. A miniature photo of a tensely smiling middle-aged man with a furrowed forehead and thinning shoulder-length hair, whom she would have claimed she'd never seen before. She discovered that he was born in 1956. He was 57 years old, a decade older than she'd guessed, and 16 years older than she was. Another card indicated that the man had a cardiac condition, mitral valve prolapse. There was a much-folded prescription dated several years before for a medication to be administered intravenously. The woman turned to the desk to speak with a nurse. She pressed the prescription on the woman, who promised to report this discovery to the cardiac specialist overseeing the man's treatment. They were only humoring her, the woman supposed, a hysterical fiancé. They'd performed their own tests on the stricken man. Ma'am, the waiting room was nearly empty when an attendant came to inform her that her companion was to be hospitalized for the night, kept under observation in the cardiac unit. The cardiologist on call had managed to control the man's fibrillation, and his heartbeat was near normal, but his blood pressure was still high, and his white blood count, cell count was low. The woman tried to feel relief, tried to think, oh, now I can go home, the danger is past. Instead, she went upstairs to the cardiac unit. For several minutes, she stood outside the doorway of the man's room, undecided whether to enter. Inside, the man lay unnaturally still as nurses fussed about him. His heartbeat was monitored by a machine. His breathing was monitored. The woman saw that the bandages hurriedly applied to his face at the ranger station had been removed. His numerous wounds had been stitched together and bandaged again in an elaborate and lurid mask of crisscrossing strips of white. As she entered the room, she thought she might faint. Yet she felt gratitude for the man's courage and for his kindness, and shame for herself she had valued the man so little. She pulled over a chair and sat beside his bed. The man's breathing was quick and shallow, but rhythmic. The bed had been cranked to a 33-degree angle. Her eyelids fluttered. Was he seeing her? Did he recognize her? The woman thought, he has forgotten my name. The man was trying to speak or trying to smile, He was asking her what. His words were slurred. She heard herself explain that she would stay with him for a while until visiting hours ended. She had his wallet and his camera and the key to his station wagon. She insisted that she would return in the morning when he was to be discharged and would drive him home then, if he wanted, if he needed her. She would return and bring the things with her and drive him home. Did he understand? In his cranked-up bed, the man drifted into sleep. They'd given him a sedative, the woman supposed. His mouth eased open, and he was breathing heavily, wetly. 
This was the night breathing the woman recalled and now felt comforted to hear. She practiced pronouncing his name, Simon. It seemed to her suddenly a beautiful name, a name new to her in her life. She'd never known anyone named Simon. Now tears spilled from the woman's eyes and ran in rivulets down her face. She was crying as she had not cried in memory. She was too old for such emotions. There was something ridiculous and demeaning about it. But she was remembering how at the top of the steep trail the man had insisted that she drink from his plastic water bottle. She hadn't wanted to drink the lukewarm water, yet had drunk it as the man watched, acquiescing as if with resistance. In their relationship, the man would always be the stronger. She would resent his superior strength, yet she would be protected by it. She might defy it, but she would not oppose it. She was thinking of the two or three occasions when she'd kissed the man in a pretense of an emotion she hadn't yet felt. Like the man, the woman was exhausted. She laid her head against the headrest of the chair beside the bed. Her eyelids closed vividly. She saw him at the peak of the Wildcat Canyon Trail, holding his complicated camera aloft, peering through the viewfinder. The wind stirred his thinning, silvery copper hair. She hadn't noticed that before. She would go to him, she thought. She would stand close beside him, slide her arm around his waist to steady him. This was her task, her duty. He was stronger than she, but a man's strength can drain from him. A man's courage can drain from him, can bleed away. But it was she who was afraid of something. The pale blue rim of the Pacific Ocean, the bald sculpted hills and exquisite little lakes that seemed as unreal as paper mache that you could poke your fingers through. To her horror, she realized that she was hearing a panting sound, a wet chuffing sound, somewhere beside her or below her on the trail, in the gathering dusk, waiting. Thank you. So we went, we went back to this trail a few weeks ago, and, and nothing bad happened. But, but there are a lot of dogs there. We don't quite understand. It says, you know, dogs, not, I think, not supposed to be there, and not, not supposed to be off-leash. The dog's sort of running around. And so I was just sort of confirmed and vindicated in the story. By... So I'm happy to try to answer any questions you might have. I'm sure there are fellow writers. Some people have sort of intense, doomed looks in their eyes. So they fellow writers and poets. Yes, yes. Are you still a professor of English at Princeton? Well, I teach creative writing at Princeton. I, I retired from full-time faculty, uh, but I'm teaching one course in the fall. But I think I'm going to teach here next, next spring, coming back. I'm all excited about that. I mean, everybody's all, nobody wants to leave Berkeley, you know. Uh, nobody wants to leave Berkeley, and everybody wants to, to come back to Berkeley. So I'll be teaching here next year, I think. I'm hoping if things work out. Well, it's a good question. Emotionally, there was much that was, that was real. I mean, the, the woman is really not myself. I wanted to create a woman who's somewhat callow. I mean, maybe I am myself. You know, I didn't really know about that. I think that the fullest truths about ourselves are not flattering or heroic, you know. And often in, in writing and in movies, if somebody has a little flaw, the person's harshly judged. But most of us are very flawed, and it's one of the curiosities of people 
It's like on Twitter, on social media. People are always attacking other people for all sorts of things that they themselves are probably guilty of, you know. It's a sort of magnification. But I wanted to have two very flawed but real people. I wrote a novel called Mud Woman, and there's a man, there are, there are characters a little bit like that too. And one of the scenes that comes back to me is the woman is with this man who's very difficult. He's a little bit like this man, but he's, he's not as nice as this. This man is actually quite a nice man. And so they're kind of going out, and neither one of them is exactly happy with the other. And she just feels that, that maybe they'll end up being married. And then they're in a restaurant, and they look around. She looks around and sees all these couples. It sort of dawns on people, especially when you're a little older, that so many people who are couples have actually, they're compromises, and they, they do love one another, but maybe they're not completely in love with one another. But it's sort of a, a gesture that one makes toward imperfection. You know, you can't wait for the perfect person, and you can't be perfect. So at a certain point, now I know there are some people who would never compromise, and those people maybe would have, have difficult lives. But that's an, that's an ethical issue. It's sort of, I find it really interesting. Like if you had a novel, for instance, that you've been working on for a long time and put much of your life into it, and somebody was willing to publish it, but they wanted it changed, you know, just, just a, not a lot, but just enough, would, you have, would it be integrity to not change it? Would it be just sensible and wise to change it? Uh, I find those questions interesting. I think it was Richard Wright with A Native Son, what, what, when this great American novel, one of the first great novels by, by a black American writer. So the Book of the Month Club was going to take that, and did take it, actually. That is fantastic. The Book of the Month Club in those, day, in those days was just an immediate bestseller. But he had to change something in the, in the novel. He had to change something that, cha- that makes it just a little less horrific to a white readers. You know, it's pretty horrific anyway. But, you know, he obviously thought about it, and he did change it, you know. And it's, it's not, not that it violated any real integrity, but many, many, I think many young writers are confronted with things like that, and it's, it's sort of an interesting position. Yes? Well, to, one, to the extent that she fell in love. Well, her father was absent from the family, and I've known some people, I know of a couple of people, where the, fa- the father, of course a mother could leave too, but well, the father left the family and therefore became very magnified in the family you know, mythology. And so she's yearning for this presence to come back, even though she resents him. And um, I think feminism is a very broad term and bottom line is that feminism means equality you know economic equality professional equality and things like that I don't think that one can expect to have equality and emotionally and in every other way I mean we're all different there are many women who who would not be like this I wrote a novel called Weaving the Mulvaney's which is about a girl of about 14 or 15 who who is who suffers what's called, what we would call date rape. It was set in 1975, and that term didn't exist. Now, a feminist would want to, to go to the police and would want to, I mean, that's what we would say today. In those days, though, to make that gesture really, really hard for a girl to live in a small town, to, to do that, and 
that, was, that is not what a feminist would do, and maybe not even what I would do, but I felt that by writing about this person, I was being true to the experience of many people. So, Well, that's a good question. I often feel that my novels, whatever my novels are, however long they are, they represent some failure to have made the novel shorter. You know, like people are saying to me, oh, I loved your novel, Blonde, or something, and I'm thinking, oh, it's, you know, it's too long. So this is, whenever you're working on a, a work of fiction, you have, to be, you have to fully realize the story. Now, you might intend to write a novel of 300 pages, but to fully realize all the characters, it might have to be 500 pages. And as a novel gets longer and longer, in most cases, it becomes less and less commercially attractive. It's not attractive to be translated. So the more you work on it, and I mean, this is not always true, obviously. J.K. Rowling has very long novels. But generally speaking, it's like with a short story. I'm sure there are writers in here. The longer your story is, the less likely it's going to be published in a magazine. Every paragraph, every page, every, every sentence, you're really sort of pricing yourself out of a possibility of being published. I've had, I was just reading a wonderful thesis from Princeton University, a really good student. He is such a good writer. He's dazzling a good writer. But he can't seem to write a story less than 40 pages. And that's actually, that's actually a problem. Now, if I told him that, I mean, I sort of hinted at it, he might try to do something about that, or he might not. You know, it's a question like, everything that you do, if you try to be truthful to yourself, it may, be not, it may, may, be, may go against you. So it's a, I think about this all the time. If I have a certain ending to a novel and it's not a really happy ending, then somebody won't like that. I have writer friends who write, have written essentially the same novel over and over again, and they're good writers. And not, not, these people are not necessarily all alive right now, but essentially you would pick up one of their novels and you would know it would have a certain trajectory, it would have a certain ending, you wouldn't be terribly upset. You'd feel some suspense, but it would end well. And I always felt that if you don't do that as a writer, if you're unpredictable, your editor, your publisher, your, your translators, your foreign publishers, your readers, they don't really trust you. You know, they can start reading a novel, and it's not going to be what they hoped it would be based on something else. But I've never been able to, to change that. Because after, after we were the Mulvaney's, which was an Oprah selection, and I'm not saying in any kind of you know, bragging way, because if the telephone book had been an Oprah selection, we'd sell a million copies. <laughs> so my next novel after that is called Zombie. That was, a, a, that was a complete antithetical novel. It was about a serial killer. It was really grim. The only novel I didn't give them my parents to even look at. So I thought, you know, I just, I just don't have that kind of predictability or I'm, I'm not on that, that plateau. And it isn't that I'm not even trying to do it. I really don't ha- I just can't do it. Every time I write something, it seems like something new and like a different, uh, a different problem. And as my, my dear husband was suffering through hearing my complaint, as my husband would say, each time I write a novel, it is sort of like the first time. And I start getting very anxious and start having even psychosomatic um, problems of one kind or another. Even though I've done it so many times, it's always like the, the first time, so it's not, it doesn't get any easier. hope that's not discouraging. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. 
Well, that's a good question. I think that we live our lives in a kind of sustained, um, an unresolved drama. You know, and that probably Shakespeare's plays are the paradigm of our lives, that the characters in the plays don't know where it's going, you know, and there aren't, flash, there aren't usually flashbacks and narrative, uh, narrative techniques in the play because everything is more or less going, going forward for the characters. And the, um, the, the challenge, I think, is to try to evoke the puzzlement and the perplexity but also exhilaration surprises of life in the writing. So if I were to write a memoir, I might write it in the historical present. In other words, not really knowing where it's going because that's how our lives, our lives are lived. And in this, in this story, I felt that, that there are, for some people, maybe some people in this room, that there are surprising events that are going to happen in your life that will involve another person that you don't anticipate. Like you think you know your own mind, and you think you're pretty subtle and, and, and firm as a personality. But then you meet another person, and you have some experience, and you're completely, you're completely um, re, you reestablish or revalue yourself. And it's those moments almost like grace, to use a theological expression, and I'm not a theological person, but the idea of grace is that something that comes and happens to you, you can't ask for it, you can't will it, you can't pray for it. It's basically going to happen to you. It could be, it could be tomorrow. It could be three months from now. So all you can do is be open to it rather than close. So the woman who seems to be so manipulating and conniving and really, she's never unhappy with herself, only with other people. You know, she seems so vain and self-absorbed. She's just stunned that she's confronted somebody else who isn't vain and self-absorbed after all, but who's willing to protect her. So she's sort of stunned by meeting this person. And we do feel that her life is, will be changed after that. Uh, so too, with all, with all of us, I think. That we can, we have these surprises that are coming. Sometimes the surprise is sh- shaking and and overwhelming, but sometimes it's just um, it's like grace. Right, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.